name. Amen. Hello, everyone. Just feeling a little congested today, so hence the mask. I did test twice, and it's not COVID. And um, after the sermon today, I will be going home, even though I really wanted to catch up with all of you, um, just to keep you all from catching the cold. Um, there's a lot of things going on at the moment. There's people with COVID, people who have the flu, um, lots of messages from people saying they're sick. So we're thinking of you if you're watching online. Um, hope you all feel better soon. And it was nice. Joshie and I got to celebrate our birthdays yesterday. So Joshie turned seven. And I turned 40, which feels really, really big, um, but I will get over my midlife crisis soon. Um, it, it, Roy and I are also back from our annual leave, so um, we took three weeks to to do get catch up on life, and I specifically took those three weeks to work on my book. Um, I'm currently writing a book um, that is meant to be a sharing book to help. Um, it's kind of like a devotional book for secular people, so that's kind of the... the um, the framework for, for which I'm writing it. So hopefully, if all goes well, and I finish this book by the end of this year, hopefully by next year, um, we'll have this book that you can hopefully share with your colleagues and friends and family members. So that's, pray for me as I work on it. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see how God leads. So I'm starting a new series today. I'm starting a new series today on how to read and study the Bible. And specifically, I'm calling this series Seven Reasons We Read the Same Bible Differently. You know, why are there so many different, you know, if all Christians are reading the same Bible, why are there so many different doctrines? Why are there so many different uh, denominations? And so this is a, a series. It's going to be a four-part series. We're doing part one today. So today I'm going to introduce the seven reasons, but then I'm going to focus on one, and then in the next uh, subsequent weeks to come, I'll focus on some of the other ones. I remember in high school, my English teacher putting this on the board, and she was teaching us the importance of punctuation. You might have seen this before. And, uh, you know, this is what, 1995 or whenever it was? And so back then, I was, we had never seen this before. Now you've probably seen it. But she put she put this on the board, and she she showed us what how would you interpret this sentence, and you know there was a bit of murmuring, and she said punctuation is key because there are a few ways to um, to interpret this. Hold on one second, I'm just gonna turn this front monitor on. Behind me, hopefully that works. Um, so one way is to say a woman. Without her man is nothing. Okay, so that's if you... Also, you don't technically need the commas, but that's one way to read it. But here's another way to read it. A woman without her man is nothing. And of course, neither statement is true, but it illustrates the importance of punctuation in how we interpret a sentence. So here's a fact. The original languages of the Bible, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek... They did not have punctuations. So the English translations that we have today are interpretations of translators who, based on their best knowledge and expertise, put the punctuation in based on what they believed was the best you know, interpretation. They considered clues like who wrote this and why, for whom, and based on the different clues that they had, they put the punctuation in. And that's just one example of some of the challenges that the Bible presents to us because we don't have the original text. 
what we have are copies of copies and translations of copies, but we don't have the original text. They have been lost to us over time. We cannot ask the original authors uh, what they actually meant because they have also passed on a long time ago. So at the end of the day, we need to remain humble and honest that we don't have all the answers and that God still has so much more to tell us than what we think we know. And so when we do these series, I'm going to be sharing some of the challenges that we face, but also I hope to present some of the ways we can overcome those challenges so that we can, to our best ability, through the Holy Spirit, come to understand the truths in the Bible and God's will for us today. So here we go. Seven reasons. And James, could I just have you come and turn this on for me? It's not turning on. Thank you. Just so I don't have to keep turning around. So seven reasons why we read the same Bible differently. I'm just going to briefly mention them all, and then I'm going to come back specifically to number one. So the first one is that we have a different understanding of how the Bible was inspired and written. What do I mean by that? Well, did God reveal thoughts and ideas to individuals who wrote them down? Or did God dictate every word to individuals who then wrote them down? We're going to come back to this topic. Yeah, that's fine. Second, our own cultural bias and worldview and prejudice. The fact is, all of us have been shaped by our education, our upbringing, our culture, our education, right? Our personality, and we all have bias. And it's important to understand and accept that, that we all have blind spots, right? We all have limited vision. None of us can see everything from every perspective. And that's because we're human. And it's important to understand this. And I'll give you a brief, quick example of why, you know, you can look at the Bible and get two very different sets of ideas. So, for example, in America, when the U.S. instituted, thank you so much, James and Kay, in the U.S., when the U.S. instituted slavery, there were Christians quoting the Bible to justify slavery. On the other hand, there were Christians in America who talked about uh, abolishing slavery and how you should treat everyone the same regardless of race and gender and all that, quoting the same Bible. And so that's an example of how, based on our own worldview and bias, we can read the same text very differently. The fourth, uh, sorry, the third reason is pride, fear, and unwillingness to explore. Now, what's the difference between this and the previous one? Well, in the previous one, it's just recognizing that you might have good intentions and you might be exploring, but we all have blind spots, right? Whereas pride, fear, and unwillingness is not even wanting to explore, not even wanting to listen because you're afraid of what you might lose. You're afraid of, of your, your worldview being shaken. You know, you're afraid of you know, everything that you had held on to in your childhood and in your, who you, you know, are and, and what you believe. You're afraid of that being taken away. And so you, don't even, you kind of plug your ears and you just don't want to even explore and hear the ideas. Now, this can really impact um, how the Bible is interpreted. And, you know, that stubbornness to even consider that you might be wrong, right? That inability to, to carefully and cautiously and prayerfully explore different ideas can really limit our understanding of the Bible. As I mentioned in the beginning, different Bible translations and therefore commentaries um, can really also shape different interpretations of the Bible. The Bible is actually 66 books, not just one book, 66 books 
written the earliest book from about 1500 BC. Um, the Old Testament goes from about 1500 BC to about 50 BC, 39 books. And the New Testament was the first one written was about 45 AD to 95 AD, and that's 27 books. And so you're talking about many different authors, almost 40 different authors, spanning, you know, thousands of years. Um, and so these books, like I've said before, we don't have the originals. We have copies, um, and it's incredible how accurate these copies are compared to some of the recent, you know, archaeological findings, um, just to compare, you know, um, you know, when they, every time they find, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the uh, 1940s, when they discover those, and they compare that with the Old Testament copies we have today. It was astounding how much of it was exactly the same. So scribes have been very faithful uh, to copy very carefully. But guess what? There are some discrepancies. Also, in the New Testament, the, um, the manuscripts, let's say, for example, the book of James. The book of James, um, you know, the Greek manuscripts have been found in various places because the writers wanted their messages to be spread. So messengers were sent out with copies, and then people would read it out loud to churches. Then they would copy and read it to others. And so you, you know, um, archaeologists have found manuscripts of the book of James, for example, in Alexandria, in, you know, um, in Constantinople, in, you know, various parts of that world. And guess what? When you compare those manuscripts, there are slight differences. So when the translations um, happen, various translations, and I preached about this in April, you remember I gave you the chart of the various Bible translations, what year they were published, what sources they used. Um, and if you look at the beginning of your Bible, it'll say in the foreword of your Bible which Greek manuscripts were chosen. Which, which, uh, and sometimes if you have a good study Bible, there'll be like a little asterisk, and in the bottom of the, of the uh, footnotes, it'll say, oh, this variation is from this Greek manuscript. Um, so based on these different translations and, and um, manuscripts, like I said, they're very minor and they're, and they're, you know, they don't change the overall meaning of the messages, but there are some differences. We're going to talk more about this in part three. Reason number five, there's a misunderstanding of the historical and literary, literary context. This is probably the most, um, in my opinion, one of the, one of the biggest reasons why the Bible gets so many different interpretations. For example, most of my life, um, there's a story in the Bible of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman. And it's, in, it's found in John chapter 4. And most of my life, I was told from the pulpit, in Bible studies, that this woman had been married five times, and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. And it was always presented as, whoa, this very immoral fallen woman, right? Painted with our cultural kind of, you know, prejudice of like, you know, Elizabeth Taylor-ish, you know, this, this woman who has had been very loose um, and sexually and, and um, got, you know, points this out to, sh to show her sinfulness, right, and, and to show her need for Christ. So most of my life, that's, that was my view of her, right? And if you've ever seen um, film depictions of this scene, she's dressed kind of very provocatively and et cetera. And it wasn't until I was a full adult um, when I came across a book by Dr. Kendra, uh, Hen Ken Kendra, sorry, Holoviak Valentine, who is a theologian and a professor, and she writes about the historical context of that woman's day in which women could not divorce a man. 
Only men could divorce the woman, and the man could divorce the reason for as simple as reason as she burnt her his breakfast,、um, and the woman had no rights to own property or to divorce her husband or to you know to earn a living for herself. So this woman who had been married five times was either divorced by her husband or had been widowed. Right? The text doesn't tell us, and the fact that that. The man that she's now living with isn't even marrying her. Means he's not even giving her that protection, that legal protection, that she desperately needs to be able to sustain herself. And so this is not a, a immoral, loose woman. This is a woman who has been through incredible rejection and hurt and sorrow. And so when Jesus points this out to her, he's not shaming her. He's saying, "I see your pain. I know what you've been through, and I'm here now." To reveal myself to you, it completely changes how you see this story, and so historical and literary context, understanding it properly rather than just jumping into it with our own kind of lens, is so key. And we'll talk more about this in part four of our series. Number six reason why we read the Bible differently is indifference and insufficient time given to study and meditate on the passage. How many times? If you read a verse or a passage, ah,、oh, we've heard this before. We go straight to what we know the application to be, and we move on, and we miss out on what God wants to teach us. We miss out on the depth of what that passage actually could truly mean for us. Because we're busy, because we're lazy, because we don't prioritize、um, taking this amazing gift that God has given us to see. What he wants to tell us today, and number seven, not being in spiritual community, because throughout history God has always revealed His truth to a group of people, to a community, and He wanted them to 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 study together, to pray together, to discuss together, to not be in isolated silos, and this is very important for when we talk about prophets, because. You know there are people today who claim to be prophets, you know,、um, who claim to hear a message from God. But if that message has no relevance for the community, and is isolated to that one person, well, maybe God spoke to you, good for you. But how is that a message for us, right? How is that actually edifying for God's church? And so、um, we'll talk more about that、uh, in part two of our series as well. But today I want to focus on the reason number one, which is the question of how was the Bible. Written, and we call this study of this question the doctrine of revelation inspiration. In other words, how did God reveal His will to His people, and how did they then transmit this message to others? Now, God communicates to people in various ways, and here are just some of them. I'm I'm rushing through because I have a lot to share today. <laughs> so sorry, I'm talking really fast. Number one, sometimes God communicated through dreams. So, for example, God sent the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and it perplexed him. And so he wanted the wise men to tell him what it meant. But he said, "I want you to tell me what I dreamt. Then I know that your interpretation is true, and you're not just making it up." And of course, nobody could tell the king what he dreamt, except Daniel goes and he prays, and God gives Daniel the exact same dream that He gave Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. And there,、uh, therefore, that whole story is found in the book of Daniel. 
Sometimes God gives visions. Now, visions are different from dreams because dreams you get when you're sleeping. Visions the receivers got while they were fully awake. But these were supernatural um, revelations where the person in the room is getting the vision, but no one else is. Um, for example, in 742 BC, the prophet Isaiah sees a vision of God sitting on his throne and the angels worshiping him and God asking the question, who is going to go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God gives him the message. All right, Isaiah, here's the message I want you to go share with everybody else. And then Isaiah does. Sometimes God sends angels to relay his message. So for example, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're highly favored, you're going to have a baby, and you're going to name this baby Jesus, and he is going to be the savior of the world. Sometimes God communicated by using types and symbols. So God showed Moses a blueprint of a sanctuary, and he said, I want you to build it exactly like this. And God gave Moses the exact centimeter dimension for every single furniture, the exact material he wanted him to use, the every piece of detail in the robe with a priest, down from the tassels on the bottom to the bells to, to you know, the, the, the little hat that the priest wore, um, and every detail of the sacrifice at what time and what kind of animal and how to sacrifice it. So, And every single one of these things represented something. It represented the plan of salvation. And so this was a, a visual, uh, symbolic type of God's message. Oh, sorry, let me go back. And, of course, um, direct speech was also used, where God sometimes spoke directly to the prophet. Uh, for example, there was a little boy named Samuel, and he was sleeping, and he heard a voice say, Samuel, Samuel, and he thinks it's Eli, the priest that he was serving, so he gets up and runs over, and Eli's like, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. Samuel lies back down, he hears again, Samuel, Samuel, goes back to Eli, and Eli's like, it wasn't me, but this is very strange, and Eli says, hey, Samuel, if that happens again, I want you to answer and say, your servant's listening, Lord, go ahead and speak. And so then Eli, uh, Samuel goes back, and once again hears for the third time, Samuel, Samuel, and this time Samuel says, all right, God, I'm listening. So he's not seeing anything. He's just hearing, God, I'm listening, and then God gives him a message, um, a very sad message you can read about in 1 Samuel. So these are some of the ways that God has spoken to people over time. By the way, the last one, the direct speech one, in the Old Testament, there are 1,600 occurrences of that phrase, you know, um, the idea that has spoken directly. Um, there are four different phrases in the Hebrew that is used. For example, the utterance of Yahweh, which is a name for God, or thus says the Lord, or and God spoke, or the word of the Lord. And you'll notice that in your Old Testament, you'll see the quotation marks that the translators have kindly put in to let you know that this is a direct quote um, from God. A prophet, by the way, just to clarify, you know, sometimes we think a prophet is someone who tells the future, but that's actually not what the word prophet means. A prophet is simply the mouthpiece or the messenger. So God has a message, he gives it to the prophet, and the prophet shares it with others. So it could be about the future sometimes, but it was mainly about the present. 
in the Old Testament, one of the main things that the that the that God told the prophet to tell the people was about the social injustice of the community. It was about the immorality of greed and of um, not paying wages, good wages to the to the employees, and of mistreating each other, etc. And so. A prophet's message is not just a prophecy of the future, it's actually um, a message for the current times a lot of the times. So, if these are the various ways that God spoke to the individual, the prophet, how then did the prophet share that message? And this is the inspiration part of the revelation, inspiration doctrine. So most of the time, it was actually orally. God spoke to the prophet and then the prophet spoke to the people. But there were times when God instructed the prophet to write it down. Or there were times when the prophet was inspired to write down the history, the genealogy, um, the eyewitness events of what was happening around them. For example, in Revelation chapter 1, um, which is the last book of the Bible, the writer John says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And so here John makes it very clear, hey, I received this message, and I saw, I heard, and now I am sharing it with you. And then you go to verse 9. And he, he relates the context. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was in, on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testi testimony of Jesus. So he was exiled there because he was a Christian. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. So here's an example of God, the angel saying, I want you to write it down, right? I want you to write it down. So throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to, to read John's account where he says, I heard, I saw, I ate, I tasted, right? And then he, he, he sent that to the seven churches. Now, when it comes to um, how the prophets wrote down the messages, Oh, hold on. Sorry. Lost my page, and I thought I didn't bring it. I'm out of order. Um, here, there are many views, but here's the main, here are the main four views of inspiration. First, of course, is the view that the Bible is not inspired, right? People who's, who look at the Bible and say, people just made it up, or maybe there's some truth in it, but overall, it's unreliable. So the rejection of the Bible as being inspired. Then there's what's called the dictation view or the mechanical view. This is the view that God dictated word for word, um, almost like the person is in a trance and they don't even know what they're writing, you know? Like, have you ever seen those um, where they're kind of like their eyes roll over and, and they're holding the pen, but they're not even looking down and, you know, somehow the words are just flowing onto the page, okay? So this is the dictation view that every word was God controlling the person. Here's a third view of inspiration. It's called verbal inspiration. And this is the view that every single word in the Bible is the word of God. It's not 
the ideas or thoughts that are inspired by the words themselves, but different from the dictation view in that the person is aware that they are writing, um, but every word is being shaped by God as they are writing. This is the verbal inspiration view. And then there's the thought inspiration, which is that God inspired the individual with the thought, and then the person wrote the thought using their own styles, vocabulary, and experiences. Now, you might, in your head, be thinking, oh, I think I belong, I, I subscribe to, you know, this one or that one, or I've heard this one or that one. Now, let me let you know that most Christians reject views number one, of course, because they believe that, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Um, and most Christians also reject number two, this idea that the Bible writer was in a trance and that, you know, they didn't know what they were writing. So most Christians believe, actually, in, in number three, in verbal inspiration. Um, they believe, so there's only two passages in the Bible that talk about this process of inspiration. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 is one of them. It says, this is Paul, first, Christian, uh, first century um, Christian theologian and missionary who wrote, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now here's the key verse. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that phrase, all scripture is God-breathed, that Greek word God-breathed, um, it only occurs once in the entire Bible, and this is it. So that's very unfortunate because um, usually in the Greek, when a word is used, um, scholars use, look at how that word is used in other contexts to give them clues on, on what that word meant. But when, when you have words that are only used once, you don't, you don't get that. And so you don't really know what it means. So we don't know exactly what does it mean that all scripture is God-breathed. But we can infer that it's implying that God is directly involved in the writing of scripture, right? So the idea that, that um, all of scripture, God is involved in that process. Here's the other verse um, that gives us a little bit more. Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 16 onward, it's onwards, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Then Peter goes on to say, and Peter, by the way, was one of the first, one of the original disciples of Jesus, um, and he was with Jesus when Jesus shared and preached and taught and healed. He was a firsthand eyewitness. Verse 19, Peter says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Okay. All right. So now we have two clues. God breathed and carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that, that is uh, translated as carried along, um, the word is pharaoh. And it can be trans, it is used in other parts of the Bible. And it sometimes means carried, like literally. It can mean prompted. It can mean moved. And so different translations will say that God, um, that human, that these prophets spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit or as they were prompted by the Holy Spirit, as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. So, like I said, many Christians look at these two Bible verse passages, and these are the only two in the whole Bible that gives us any clue as to how the Bible is written. And so based on these passages, most Christians believe in verbal um, inspiration, that every word is exactly as God wants it, and that there's a reason for every seeming discrepancy found in the Bible. Most Seventh-day Adventists, however, we, we're a bit different from the rest of the Christianity. We believe in thought inspiration. And let me explain what that means. And I say most because evangelical view um, of verbal inspiration has crept into the Seventh-day Adventist ch- church as well. So now there are fundamentalists within Adventism who support verbal inspiration. But if you go back to the origins of the Seventh-day Adventist church, and you go back to the principles on which this denomination was founded, which was about coming together, studying the Bible, and letting the Bible speak, and letting God speak through the word, the uh, early pioneers believed in thought inspiration. What is that? It's the belief that God revealed his will and messages to men and women who spoke and wrote these thoughts and ideas the best they could using the language and their experience and, and you know, the world around them to explain in a way that their, mess, their, their audience could understand. So, for example, Ellen White, who was a pioneer, a leader, and a prophet in the church, wrote, the, Bi- the Bible is not given to us in grand, superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. The stamps of mind are different. All do not understand expressions and statements alike. Some understand the statements of the scriptures to suit their own particular minds and cases. Prepossessions, prejudices, passions have a strong influence to darken the understanding and confuse the mind, even in reading the words of the Holy Writ. She goes on to say, The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God. But God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words and thoughts receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is infused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. Let me unpack that a little bit, okay? I know it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big statement. She, what, let me clarify. She is not saying that the Bible is not inspired. She is 100% saying the Bible is inspired. 
But what she's saying is, God impresses people with thoughts, right? With, with, with God's message. And then human beings took those thoughts and expressed them based on their personality and their educational backgrounds and their cultural backgrounds to express them the best that they could using their human language to relay that important truth to everybody else. Which means that the ideas and the principles are what is truly important and the details are also important in giving us clues to get the main idea, but we don't have to be caught up in the minor discrepancies. Herbert Douglas, a Seventh-day Adventist theologian, wrote, in 1988. In other words, the human phrase of the divine human communication system will be beset with occasional discrepancies simply because of human finiteness. Stephen's eloquent sermon in Acts 7 contains an incidental reference to the number 75 of Jacob's family who went into Egypt to live with Joseph. However, the Genesis reference, Genesis 46:27, states that 70 of Jacob's family went into Egypt. What shall we make of this difference? If we believe that Genesis is the only historical source that Jews in the first century have for this information, then we simply understand that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy, guided Stephen in reciting the big picture, but did not intervene on details. Prophets do not necessarily become authorities on historical data. Their inspirational value lies in their messages, not in some of the details that are incidental to the big picture. So is the Bible a reliable source of truth? Absolutely. We have a high view of scripture as the authoritative voice of God, but we recognize its scope and purpose, right? So going back to 2 Timothy, well, it's the purpose of the holy scriptures. It's to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the purpose of scripture, is to get us to understand how salvation works, to get us to understand how to become righteous like God. That is the scope of scripture. Same thing with Second Peter. Notice that the Bible, right, the, the holy scriptures, it's, it's a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. And I like this reference to light because in history, is light a particle or a wave? Scientists, you know, from as back, far back as 1600s debated this until they finally came to the conclusion, it's both. It's both a particle and a light. Is the Bible written by humans or God? It's both. It's written by God, God's messages that are very important that human beings wrote in human language, right? They're not written in God's language. God's language is not Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and English, right? It's, it's God speaking to humans who humans wrote in human language to other people to, to relay the, the universal, essential truths about salvation and about righteousness. And ultimately, that the Holy Scriptures is there to give us light about God so that God can be born in our hearts. That morning star is a reference to Jesus. And when you come to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, John, who was 
an eyewitness of Jesus, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Going on in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law that was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Why does John spend so much time talking about Jesus as the Word? Because all Scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture has to be interpreted in the light of Jesus, who is the ultimate representation of God, right? Words failed, right? Because it's, it's, it could only do so much. Because only God is perfect. Only God is immortal. The Bible is amazing, but it is not God. It, it shows us who God is. Jesus was the only full representation of God, and he came to show us who the Father is. And so if you read a passage in the Bible that's a bit confusing, always read it with the light of who Jesus was. And that will give you clarity on how to interpret the text rightly. This is what Jesus taught his disciples how to do. When he rose from the dead and, and the disciples still didn't get it, Jesus walks along with two disciples who are on their way to Emmaus. And it says in Luke chapter 24 that he's, he's, he's talking to them. And they're like, they're, they're like, well, Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah, but he died. And there are some women who are saying that he's resurrected, but we don't believe them. And now we're just going home. And Jesus says, hey, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, Jesus is not throwing out the Old Testament, not at all. He is elevating it and he's showing what its true intent was. By showing them through the Old Testament how the, the, the messianic prophecies were actually misinterpreted by so many of his people. And Jesus is saying, hey, go back and look at these passages in light of me, right? And he's showing them that. And this is so key because we don't throw out the Bible, never. The Bible is what shows us God. And Jesus could have just shown himself to the disciples and said, look at my hands and my feet. But instead, he takes the time to take them back to Scripture, to help them to interpret scripture correctly before he reveals himself to them. So Jesus elevates the importance of the scripture and shows how all of it is inspired, but he shows the importance of reading it in light of himself. The Bible, the Old and New Testament, will always be the test for every prophet or every idea, right? It has to be the authority, the touchstone upon which we test all things. But we must have the correct view of scripture in order to have a solid foundation for our faith. The Bible cannot be our idol. We worship God. The Bible helps us to know God. And the implication for thought inspiration versus verbal inspiration is huge. Verbal inspiration implies that each biblical statement is 
an objective communication of absolute truth, and that it means the same thing to all readers throughout all time. Verbal inspiration. Thought inspiration allows each biblical statement to represent universal truth that can be applied then to different people in different times and cultures in different ways. We saw this when we, back in April, looked at the idea of gender equality in the Bible. And we looked at that Bible passage where it says women should be silent in the church. Verbal inspiration, people who espouse verbal inspiration, look at that passage and they have to say this is universal truth for all places, for all time. Women need to be silent in the church, period. But we took time to unpack that passage. We took time to look at the universal truth that is represented there, which was about order and harmony in a church service. And we looked at how throughout the whole Bible, the, the, how God treated men and women and, and how God created Adam and Eve. And, and we looked at how um, looking at the passages in their context, that that truth is not about women being silent in churches for all time, for all places. You see how the implication of verbal inspiration versus thought inspiration can make a huge difference in how we interpret Bible passages. Verbal inspiration leads to great perplexities when discrepancies, discrepancies in the Bible passages are found. For example, there's an eyewitness account of Jesus freeing the demoniacs. In Matthew, it says there are two. In Mark and Luke, it says there's one. Which is it? And if you espouse the verbal inspiration, this is, this is really perplexing and can lead to doubt in God, in the Bible, in faith. But if you have espoused thought inspiration, it, we don't live in this angst and anxiety because, well, Matthew says there are two. There are probably two. Mark and Luke says it's talking about the one and, and focusing on the dialogue with Jesus and the one. That doesn't bother us because in both cases, the point is Jesus freed the demoniac. Jesus has power over spirits. Both versions are true and important. How we interpret the discrepancies in the various parts of the Bible that are found. Thought inspiration is able to harmonize it because we can see the truth that is the same and consistent throughout Scripture. Verbal inspiration stops with the Bible as the revelation of truth. But thought inspiration believes that God's truth and light will continue to enlighten us and will continue to teach us. This is based on a prophecy by God recorded by the prophet Joel over 2,500 years ago. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, the prophet says, and afterwards, talking about right before the coming of the Lord, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the Bible is telling us there's more truth to come. There's more revelation to come. So thought inspiration, we are, we are wanting to know that truth. We are wanting God to tell us more, right? To, to, to help us see and read the Bible to get us to the next steps of learning what is God's will for us today. So here's the takeaway for today on the idea of revelation inspiration. Read the Bible in the light of Jesus, right? When you read the Bible, read it always in the light of Jesus. He is the great light that everything is shining towards. 
delve into the Bible with hope and excitement that there's new truths to be found, right? If you, if you believe that everything as it reads is all there is, well, you've read it all already. What is there? What more there is there? But if you believe that there is so much more to be found, that God has messages in there for us for today that's relevant to us, then we can delve into the Bible with excitement. What are you going to discover today? And then you, you mind the principles, right? The details are clues to help us to get the universal principle that we then apply to our time, our lives. And also we pray. We pray for the Holy Spirit to help us understand that the same Holy Spirit who moved men and women to speak for him will move our hearts and minds and eyes so that we can understand what he's trying to speak to us today. That the same mystery and miracle of God speaking to humanity will happen again in our lives so that we can be transformed by the word of God. So that the word of God can be living and true for us. So that we can experience as a community and as individuals, right, the living God through the living word, helping us understand what it means to follow Jesus in 2023 here in Melbourne. So it's my prayer that as we tease through this more in our discussion time and as we think about it this week, as we read our Bibles this week, that we'll be able to approach it with that excitement and hope and wonder to see what God has for us today. Please pray with me as we close. Father God, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the Bible, for for revealing your will and your message and your truths to us. Help us to study it. Help us to, to embrace it with humility and with open hearts and minds, wanting to learn more, wanting to always um, hear from you, to be willing to let go of our prejudices, to be willing to let go of our fears, and to actually prioritize studying your word, cherishing it for what it is, the inspired word of God, where you have so much to teach us. And Father, as we continue our series and as we continue our discussion Help us to be able to respect each other's opinions and thoughts. Um, we're all on different journeys here. And I just pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would help us to learn more from each other and from you every single day. Please be with those who are sick um, or traveling and unable to be here with us today, that as they're watching online uh, or, or listening later to the podcast, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us wherever we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.